0: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
1: Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
2: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, the world headquarters of Common Sense, as the leaders of the free world, and some parts that are not so free, uh, head for home, saving the knowledge that they have now saved the planet from a fate worse than death. That's right, Joe Biden, Boris Johnson, Justin Trudeau, Emmanuel Macron, and the rest of the gang, loads, too many people to mention really, have given themselves a massive pat on the back and got on their respective private jets after supposedly agreeing to sign a load of pledges about keeping the temperature of the Earth from rising above another degrees at some point in the future. So that's all right, then. Now we can ignore the climate crisis, can't we? Thank goodness for that. First up this morning, we're talking to Marcus Fish MP, who is a member of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, and if ever there was a need for scrutiny, this is the time for it, and who may, like me, have a few questions about why we're so obsessed with all of this. Meanwhile, China has already kiboshed the supposed plan hatched in Glasgow and suggested they might not actually be going along with it all after all. How extraordinarily surprising. What, China doesn't want to uh, join in with our supposed plan to keep the Earth from burning up and drowning? You can't really burn up and drown at the same time. Anyway, who knows? Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand is the number. We'll be checking in with Professor Carol Sikora on the news that almost a third of pancreatic cancer patients wait months before seeking help and I'll be asking about the social care problem where as many as 60,000 people could be sacked in the next few weeks because they haven't been double jabbed. This is all on the orders of Health Secretary uh, Sajid Javid of course. Tonya Buxton is here too reporting in from Cyprus. She's going to be addressing the hypocrisy of COP26, pollution and the new mask mandates. Plus we'll be asking what's going on in our universities at the moment as well because they all seem to be operating as if they don't want anybody to actually turn up 0344 499 1000 is the number, of course. Former police officer Harry Miller will attempt to explain how on earth Cressida Dick is still in charge of the Metropolitan Police uh, after yet another high-ranking scandal. Uh, Two Scotland Yard officers were told yesterday they faced custodial sentences after sharing photos of two murdered sisters from a crime scene. Absolutely ghastly behaviour. I mean, I can't imagine what they thought they were going to get away with. Horace is back in situ at Downing Street, of course, and Peter Cardwell will be here to guide us through Prime Minister's questions today in the company of Angela Rayner, was in for the COVID-stricken leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer. So at least it might be a bit more interesting uh, than it normally is. Uh, as ever, of course, we need to hear from you. What's going on out there? What are you running out of? Shortage of the day will be here. And what are you being told by your employers? Because yesterday, uh, all uh, parliamentary staff were told that they should go and work from home. So you tell us what's going on in your world, and we will tell everyone. Everybody else, 0344 499 1000 is the number. You listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. Is it any wonder? We are, of course, Talk Radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, uh, you will have been probably glued, uh, as I was not, to all of the coverage of COP26. I mean, uh, it was quite ludicrous in the way that it kicked off. It was quite ludicrous in the way that uh, all these meetings were held. They made some arrangement about methane yesterday. Boris Johnson made a few uh, rather ridiculous uh, kind of analogies with James Bond and doomsday machines and various other speeches by Joe Biden were barely uh, understandable. Lots of people, of course, didn't turn up, including the president of China uh, and Vladimir Putin, uh, the leader of Russia. And so a lot of people are thinking, what exactly was it all about? What exactly was it all for? And when are we going to get the bill? Let's talk to Marcus Fish, MP, member of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, of course, as well. Marcus, very good morning to you. Hi, morning. I'm not trying to be over cynical here, but it's a bit difficult uh, to take all of this seriously because, quite frankly, um, it's all airy fairy land in the future. Um, nobody's really talking about actual facts. They're talking about predictions and what might happen and what could happen and what will happen if we don't do something. Um, but I mean, they've all come home now as if it's all s- sorted. So what do you, what do you make of it all?
3: Well, what, what we do know for sure is it's going to cost <laughs> an eye watering sum of money. Yes. I mean, they are talking about a hundred trillion dollars. <laughs> Over the next 30 years, three and a half trillion dollars a year. And they couldn't even raise 100 billion with their whip round in the last couple of days. No. So, uh,
2: and, and also we're hearing, despite the fact that they think that they are edging towards some kind of agreement, that China's probably not going to go along with it anyway. Um, they're all, they're, you know, it just seems to me that for for what it was billed as, you know, the world's greatest opportunity to save the planet, you know, the greatest collection of leaders uh, of in history who are all going to do some good for it all. And it's and it's finished, and it's only Wednesday.
3: Well, look, I do think we we should be trying to reduce our impact on the world around us. That is a good thing, I think. But we need to make sure through that process that we make sure people have abundant, cheap energy because that is what drives life. And so, to the extent that we do need to help developing countries, who you have rightly highlighted as being incredibly necessary to uh, try to reduce our impact Mm. on the world, we have to be in the market for uh, producing proper game-changing investment in technologies that will allow them uh, to develop in the way that they want to develop for their people, um, but not have it uh, costing the earth.
2: No, indeed. Tossing the earth is a very nice analogy of yours there. Quite well done. Better than any of Boris's ones, I'd have to say. But this is the point, isn't it? That, you know, all of this kind of um, race to net zero, uh, as they're calling it, um, and everybody kind of getting up and talking about how we all have to change our behaviour, we will have to eat different food. I mean, this is not conservative politics to me. And I mean, forget about anybody else in the world. Forget about what Joe Biden wants people to do or or what Trudeau wants people to do or Macron. But, you know, we elected in this country a conservative government uh, not to be in our bedrooms and in our kitchens and in our living rooms and in our fireplace telling us what we should be doing with our lives. You know, the idea is that you don't tax us too much. We get on with what we do. We make the wealth of the country uh, and everybody's happy. It doesn't seem to be working out that way.
3: Well, I'm 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 certainly in favour of people being able to spend their money the way that they want to, and and to have choice. Um, it's up to individuals what what they want to do. But I'm, I I uh, enjoy eating meat. Uh, there are lots of farmers around the country who rely on us buying their meat, mm. um, and that is an entirely um, healthy process. And I I just think yeah, it is wrong to be as some uh, in the firmament seem to be um, trying to do at the moment, trying to use the COVID panic as something that they can then switch into a climate panic to try to uh, get people to wholesale change both the way the financial system operates and the way that they uh, run their lives and the level of government intrusion uh, into their lives suddenly being acceptable. This, This is what Mark Carney has explicitly said he wants to do. He he says don't let this crisis over covid go to waste. We have to turn it into a panic over climate so yeah. that
2: people will be controlled. And, and you know Mark Carney who's never been elected to any office that I know of uh, has no business telling us what we should be doing, does he?
3: No he hasn't and of course you know there's quite a lot in it for him potentially as an ex Goldman Sachs banker. He will be seeing dollar signs. In all of this, well, this is it. I mean, all these, all these massive, yeah, all,
2: these, all these massive investment firms. I think he belongs. He's attached to one now, back in Canada, uh, after being governor of the Bank of England and getting some uh, bogus job at the UN. You know, all of these people are making vast amounts of money out of this. You know, for uh, for Boris Johnson uh, and for Joe Biden and for other world leaders to start dictating, for example, to uh, FTSE 100 companies that they must have better plans to go greener, or else they're going to be somehow punished. You know, I mean, this is is not the politics that people want in this country, I don't think.
3: No, and actually the technical issue underlying it's very serious too, in that if you restrict investment in uh, companies in one way or another with a great dead hand of, you know, Gordon Brown's clunking fist saying you must do X, Y and Z, uh, then it will interfere with the allocation of capital into the right place Mm. and funnily enough probably restrict Uh, the physical economy from providing for the transition, there's a huge amount of materials that will be required, steel, copper, all of these things are massively energy intensive to transform our energy grid and to rely more on electric cars and that sort of thing, I, I actually drive electric cars and that and that's all fine, but it takes... Well, you, maybe you should be doing... ...capacity a, maybe, to do it. Maybe you yeah.
2: should be doing Allegra Stratton's job, Marcus, because Allegra Stratton, who's in charge of uh, this, uh, campaigning for COP26, doesn't drive an electric car because uh, she says it's not practical for her.
3: Well, look, I've, I have got one that has a what is called a range extender. So if you run out of electricity, then you can, um, you can fill up and it generates your battery from that. This, these kind of hybrid models are... A sensible approach and we should be similarly looking at hybrid types of transition if mm. we think that we can't rely on fossil fuels if we shut down all fossil fuel production and exploration now we will not be able to produce the copper and steel that is required to transform our grid or get the lithium that's required mm. for the batteries there has to be a proper practical plan for getting from a to b yeah and at the moment i don't see it
2: Yeah, I don't know whether the Taliban were invited to um, uh, COP26, but certainly they would appear to be sitting on most of the world's lithium at the moment, because Afghanistan apparently is the biggest um, sort of uh, mining uh, opportunity for that. So that'll be an interesting conversation.
3: Right. Well, yeah, they're pretty entrepreneurial people. Anything that shifts them away from heroin is probably a good idea.
2: Well, it is. But, I mean, it it puts us us into uh, some rather strange places, I would have thought, because the the places where the lithium is going to be coming from, Afghanistan and some parts of Africa, um, are not exactly what you might call bastions of human rights and bastions of places where children are not sent down mines to get stuff.
3: Well, yeah. and doesn't seem very clean, does it? Well, the serious point is that we are going to need access to rare earth materials of one kind or another And China has been very active in uh, making moves around the world to control physical infrastructure Mm. related to these things in one way or another. And we're only sort of waking up to that now. Right. And we absolutely do need to work with partners in Australia, for example, to make sure that we have the mineral supplies that we need. But unless you've got cheap, abundant energy to actually make the materials out of it, the whole thing is totally pie yeah. in the sky.
2: Right. And that's one thing we, t- we currently do not have, is cheap, abundant energy. We have very expensive yeah. and shortages of energy. Um, tell us a bit about the net zero scrutiny group though, Marcus, because I've been trying to get somebody to answer the one question that a lot of my listeners and viewers want to know, which is what does net zero actually mean? Because I don't think I've ever heard anyone describe what it means. It doesn't mean no emissions at all. What does it mean?
3: No, they, they are... Trying to by twenty fifty uh, restrict the uh, the rise in temperature that they allege is happening um, to uh, one and a half to two two percent. Mm. Um, the scientists or well, some of the scientists say that we're on track for more like three percent plus at the moment by the end of the century if we don't take action to get to this net zero target by twenty fifty, which is that on balance, the economies of the world shouldn't be emitting uh, uh, carbon dioxide net into the atmosphere because there'll be all these different offsets and investments in green credits and this sort of thing. Now, I th- I, I think of forestation projects and reforestation projects, trying to make sure that uh, the Amazon rainforest isn't destroyed. These are all good initiatives, and I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not against that, but I am against... Catastrophizing and hyperbole. Mm. And so, the, the scrutiny isn't to say that the science is all complete rubbish. Um, I think it is right always to question science. Any scientific process actually requires um, evidence and experiments and um, hypotheses mm. to be challenged. Yeah. And to, um, so, it is right to try to scrutinize this sort of thing. The no, idea I, I couldn't agree this, more. I could not agree more. The idea more. that this is settled science just is. It's a misnomer. You can't, no science is settled. It's mm. just nonsense.
2: Well, exactly. And we've seen this, haven't we, with the whole, the whole, the whole COVID uh, crisis where some things were said to be likely to happen, some things were predicted that they would happen. Not all of the predictions turned out to be true. In fact, quite a lot of the predictions from SAGE turned out to be wildly inaccurate. Um, and so all we've got really here uh, is another series of models, another series of scientists saying this will happen if we don't do this. And, you know, we've only got really their word for that even if you accept that what they say is happening is actually happening as a result of what we're doing, you still can't be sure that what they say will then happen next is actually going to happen. And if you have to then weigh up, surely, the economic damage that's going to be done to our economy in the way that we didn't weigh up the economic damage that was going to be done by lockdown before lockdown was organised, you know, we're going to be heading for a very slippery slope, it seems to me.
3: Yeah, and uh, what is being proposed is a a wholesale change to the way the global economy operates finance operates they're talking about bringing in central bank digital currencies uh president biden's appointee to uh, the role w- within his administration that oversees the operation of the u.s banking system yeah. has just proposed well she she a was the recipient of the lenin prize at moscow university before she moved to america but now she's talking about abolishing all private interaction with the monetary system and Basically, getting everybody Federal Reserve accounts, which the Federal Reserve and the government will administer, right. and moderate well, flows well, of money in the economy. I mean, I mean where do we this grow is, these this people? Is serious freedom of our societies is at stake here. I, I'm, I'm not overegging that. No. I genuinely think this is a massive putch by very, very strange people in yeah. uh, places who really should know better. Right. No, I think um, you're absolutely I'm, right, I'm, and I'm. I'm
2: a lot, of, a lot of people, Marcus, will be very, very pleased to hear an elected representative uh, of this country in the House of Commons saying what you've just said, because a lot of people are going. Hang on a minute. You know, we've sort of gone from the odd warning on a cigarette packet to you know, um, you know, don't please don't smoke. It's probably going to harm your health. To suddenly being told this is how we must live. This is how we must eat. This is where we must not go. These these are the places that need to be saved. You know, I mean, suddenly we've turned into this kind of incredibly. Um, Dictatorial system, and if you dissent from it in some way, you're treated like some kind of nutcase. Yeah, well, that's
3: absolutely right, um, and we need to be realistic about life. Uh, I, I mean, as I said, I, I'm not. I'm I'm a big fan of the environment. I I used to. No, we have all a, are. Uh, I I love nature, and I want to protect it as much as we can. And and if there is serious evidence that we need need to do X, Y, and Z, we need to turn human ingenuity to solving these issues yeah. and I'm not saying that, there is, that there's nothing that we should do of course we should think about what we can do but we need to really invest in these technologies that can provi- try to provide abundant energy because there is no, um, no long term solution to um, trying to make human progress uh, clean and green without that being centered in having technologies that make energy abundant and clean at the same time. Exactly uh, right.
2: Marcus, just stay with us for a second. We've just got to take a little short uh, break and uh, pay the bills, as we say. Marcus Fish MP, member of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, very encouraged by what Marcus is saying. Uh, He's making an awful lot of sense, which was something we haven't heard much from uh, up in Glasgow at COP26. I want to hear from you of course on this as well. 03444991000. You know, I'm not having uh, my life being dictated to uh, by a bunch of unelected bureaucrats and indeed, uh, even and some who are elected because they were not elected to tell me how to live my life or yours for that matter this is talk radio
4: this is talk radio
2: across the uk online
1: on dab plus and on the talk radio app the independent republic of mike Gray on talk radio
2: welcome back to the independent republican mike graham right here on talk radio we're talking to marcus fish member of the net zero scrutiny group and a conservative mp of course back in the house today um what do you make by the way uh, marcus of the latest advice from uh, from uh, parliament where i think uh, most mps members of staff have been told to work from home why have they decided to do that uh you
3: <laughs> yeah many of us are scratching our heads uh, wondering the same thing mm. um I think there have been some cases on the parliamentary estate um, in recent days and the last week. Um, but I don't really see that it's any different to anywhere else in the country, to be honest. Um, uh, the reality is the virus is endemic, uh, as the medical officers have been saying. Everyone's going to get it over the course of these, these months. Yeah. Um, and um, that's why we've got the vaccines. Um, it's, it's been great that we've been able to open up. Um, So I think a lot of people are a bit confused as to why suddenly there's a uh, decision to yeah. restrict everybody Because again. one of the big
2: problems for me uh, as far as the economy getting back to normal is concerned is, is the, the, the way that civil servants in particular, and I'm not picking on anyone in particular, but civil servants seem to be the least likely people to be working in an office. Most people um, around here where I am in London uh, are now back at work. Most people are not staying at home. Most people are, have, have, have decided or have been told, you know, it's time to get back in. It's quite busy on the streets out there You know, why why civil servants somehow a special case?
3: yeah look it, it's um, it is it is odd i think that they haven't been asked to come come back to work yet i think some are starting to come back um, but i think we this should be getting them. back back to normal now um, but i would encourage everybody to go and get the vaccines and get the boosters etc because that is definitely a much um, you're 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 much less likely to have a problem yeah. with the virus which we will all get if you have those things. Um, but so
2: the point the point surely should be being made is that all very well if you keep telling people to do that, but if that doesn't actually change anything and people can't go and do what they want to do and keep being told they've put a mask on and all that, you know, what's the point?
3: Uh, I think people's common sense does need to be relied on in the end. And it's been interesting in places like Sweden where that, that's been relied on throughout. Um, things, things are now pretty much back to normal yeah. there. Um, And when you look at the overall statistics, they haven't had a uh, particularly bad time relative to other places. So Mm. it has just been a different shape of when things happen. No, come on. Um, Yeah. So I I firmly think that we should be back to normal um, and we should have anticipated this wave moving through the population now. That's what we did anticipate. And it is um, still thankfully running. Uh, in terms of hospitalizations and deaths underneath the, uh, the projections that were made at the time of what opening up might mean. So mm. I, d- I think it's wrong to be trying to stop that wave moving at this point in time because all it'll do is sort of prolong it and we'll end up with cases happening in January, February when the system is much more likely to be under general pressure.
2: Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Marcus, this is, I very, very much enjoyed talking to you. Very interesting views uh, that I don't hear very often from Conservative MPs. So, so thank you for that. One final question. What's going on with this Owen Paterson business? Why is Boris Johnson going to try, as we are told by the Telegraph today, uh, to reform the standards watchdog in the House of Commons in order to save Owen Patterson, who has apparently uh, been, been behaving uh, in a way which has caused him to be suspended?
3: I think the uh, issue that, well, my understanding is the issue that people want to look at is whether the standard system should have concepts of natural justice and appeal rights within it. I mean, MPs get accused of all kinds of things, um, but don't within that system have the right to a sort of uh, judicial type process that observes Uh, principles of natural justice the ability to call witnesses to have a proper appeal that isn't conducted by the same person who who investigated in in the first place these are things which in any other walk of life um, one does have these sorts of recourse Um, so this committee that they're proposing to set up is I understand it to uh, look into whether that might be amended to some degree um, and that might be something that I think a lot of MPs would welcome, because quite often the process isn't um, isn't necessarily as fair as it could be.
2: <laughs> I'm not any more any any the wiser after that, but I don't think if you ask most people in the streets of, of this country, uh, what's, what's the hardest job to get fired from? I think most of them would say being an MP, because you know they don't see people getting sacked very often.
3: Well, well, well. I, I'm not here to sort of uh, defend MPs in particular. What I would say is that on a, it is a pretty brutal op- occupation. You're elected until you're not, um, and um, that kind of relationship between the constituents and the MP is, at the end of the day, the important one. And the com- the confidence of the people who elect you is traditionally the way that these things are dealt with. Mm. Um, and you know that's that's a good thing. Um, it is, yeah. You you go up until you go down in the right. game of politics, and um, uh, yeah, it isn't it isn't the most uh, secure. Well, I mean, it really depends what what type of seat you're in. To be mm. honest, as well, some who are in safe seats have a totally different experience from those who are in a marginal seat. Mm. A marginal seat could end tomorrow, yes. Um, whereas a safe seat is it's an entirely different beast, entirely different type of career, and different types of people are involved in different types of seat for different reasons. It's a fascinating... um, All of life is definitely there in the House of Commons, and it does, in that sense, reflect um, life
2: outside. Well, let's hope so. Uh, Let's hope it does it more often as well. Marcus Bishop, MP, member of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, Uh, they're talking a great deal of sense um, however, uh, we will address the uh, business with Owen Paterson a little bit later. Because I think most people would probably not uh, be entirely in agreement with what Marcus said there, uh, that in fact uh, it's quite unfair the way that the MPs are treated by uh, various standards watchdogs, because I think all of us remember the expenses scandal. All of us remember the people who uh, are found guilty of all sorts of things uh, and then still find themselves able to appear as MPs. So um, I don't think he's going to win on that one. But we'll take loads of your calls, please. 03444991000, particularly on this net zero nonsense, uh, We still haven't really quite got to the bottom of why it's happening, what we will be paying for it, and when we will suddenly see the world changing into a better place. Is that what we want?
1: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
2: Let's talk instead to Professor Carol Sakura, Medical Director of Rutherford Cancer Centres, because the story this morning uh, has caught our interest, and I'm sure uh, Carol's as well, uh, which is basically that an awful lot of people, almost a third, in fact, of people with pancreatic cancer issues do not seek help for those issues for months and months and months and months. And, months, and we need to get that improved. We need to find out why that's happening. And we need to fix it. Uh, Carol, very good morning to you. And to you, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I mean, you and I talk about um, cancer waiting times an awful lot. Uh, Hopefully, each time we talk, um, the the, the backlog is is getting more and more reduced. Hopefully, people are now seeing specialists again uh, in a more orderly and quick manner. Um, But why pancreatic cancer uh, specifically this
1: time? Because it's a difficult one to diagnose, Mike. Um, The pancreas is just next to the stomach, just behind the stomach. So it's right at the top of the abdomen. And uh, the symptoms you get from early pancreatic cancer are very vague. A bit of indigestion, a bit of abdominal pain, a bit of noisy gas stuff coming, and then weight loss. The worst symptom is jaundice. And what this study from Pancreatic Cancer UK shows is that people don't understand that jaundice, when your eyes go yellow, uh, is a bad thing to have. Mm. And you should immediately go to the doctor if you have it, something like that. of the people they surveyed didn't realise it. And the jaundice is caused by pancreatic cancer blocking the outflow of the bile duct, which carries the bile Mm. from the liver into the gut and out into the the stool. And if that's blocked, you have problems.
2: Yes. I mean, even if it doesn't lead to uh, a discovery about a problem with the pancreas, I mean, even uh, just having any kind of jaundice is obviously a bad sign anyway, because it's a liver illness
1: as well, isn't it? It is. And... The real problem as well is you go to the, it takes at least three visits to get the average pancreatic cancer diagnosed or referred on for investigation. Mm. And that's the key. So the first visit, oh, don't have some indigestion pills, go away. Come back the second time, well, it's not got better, try a different sort. The third time, you may be sent off for an ultrasound or a CT scan, which yeah. is the definitive test. That takes three months. And we know how difficult it is to get a GP appointment at the moment for everybody.
2: Yes, that's still proving to be a problem. And every time I talk to you, uh, Carol, I always hope that we'll have some breakthrough and you'll say, isn't it great? Everybody's back to normal. Instead, I keep seeing the BMA popping its little head up saying, oh, uh, we're thinking we might have a strike now because we don't actually want to see any more patients.
1: And we certainly don't want to sign up any new ones and telling the health minister not to harass them, for God's <laughs> sake. And who are they? The, who, who, who are the, who's harassing them? The patients are harassing them, the, the, you know, the ministers are harassing them. They want better service. And I think pancreatic cancer just encapsulates the problem with general practice. The only way we can get cancer diagnosed is for the GP's to see the patient face to face if they've got new symptoms, and then refer on. And pancreas cancer is the classic one. The overall outcomes poor. About ten thousand people get it each year, so it's not a small cancer. A lot of people are getting it, and the treatment, if it's caught early when the tumour is confined to the pancreas gland itself, is, is very good. Surgery may be followed by radiotherapy. That's all you need. But once it spreads, it's lethal. But chemotherapy is not very good, and you know, immunotherapy. We're trying it, and it works now and again, but it's not great. Mm. So. The only diagnosis is the key
2: here. Yeah. Right. And do you think that all of the money that's now being shoveled towards the NHS in, in, in view of what Rishi Sunak said the other day uh, in the budget statement, six, mil, six billion more coming and then more coming again next April with the um, uh, with the windfall sort of tax from national insurance, Is there any chance that we could get better as a country at treating cancer? Because I speak as someone who knows what goes on in in other countries, certainly in the United States, where where their cancer outcomes are so much better than ours. I mean, what could we do to make those uh, cancer outcomes better in this country?
1: So I've been looking at this for the last 40 years, since I've been a consultant, and there's no doubt that uh, the outcomes are poorer here and still remain poorer, whatever the politicians say. They're getting better, but Mm. the Europeans are getting much better. Because of poor early diagnosis. The diagnostic pathways are slow, they're laborious, the delays, getting a scan, especially in the post COVID era, getting a scan is no joke. It could take you three months to get an urgent scan. In France, you'll get one tomorrow. If it's marked urgent, you'll get one the same day. Mm. There's a different philosophy about cancer. Now, in all fairness, the government has a plan, uh, community diagnostic hubs, it's called, mm. it's all these centers. We built one. Uh, in Taunton, and it's very nice, and you can come and have a scan the same or next day as a normal practice. The problem is, you've got to roll this out. It costs money, not as much as test and trace, may I say. <laughs> Nothing costs that much. <laughs> oven, yeah, that was 43 billion pounds, 20% of the NHS budget mm. for two years spent on test and trace. Yeah. Ridiculous. And
2: incredibly, uh, and incredibly, uh, Carol, as well. It didn't work. I mean, you know, it's all very well to spend ludicrous amounts of money on something, but I think it's right to say that something only fourteen percent of the tests that were actually taken or given out were returned. Fourteen one four
1: percent. I know <laughs> the whole thing is just a, a complete waste of money. And the, the adage we teach medical students all the time: do not do a diagnostic test and you've got unless you've got a therapy to offer. So where's the therapy? with covid there isn't any in reality so testing people that are healthy to be positive what are you going to do with them you have to isolate a whole lot of people it's it makes no sense for an infection like this if you use all that resource when you you throw other patients under the bus heart attack cancer stroke and so on uh, because of the political importance of covid of being seen to do something you know to me it's very similar to the the COP conference in Glasgow, as you say, the, the, the heaviest have been, they've gone back in their private jets, consuming no end of carbon, leaving people to sort it out. Mm. They're not going to sort it out. Poor people are going to get poorer because of that in this country. And that is crazy.
2: It really is. Professor Carol Sakura, as ever, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Medical Director of Rutherford Cancer Centres, of course. Uh, We didn't really have time to get into one of the other stories I want to talk about this morning, uh, which I want to hear from you about, because it's on the front page of the Daily Mirror, uh, a paper that I don't normally uh, quote from these days, although I did used to work for it. Uh, They've got a story saying that 60,000 care workers are facing the sack in the next few weeks as a result of not being double-jabbed. This is Sajid Javid's idea uh, of how to somehow coerce people into getting vaccinated against covid now i don't think he has any business to do that i really don't think that even if you had elderly relatives in a care home that you would want that care home to actually dictate to the people working there that they had to have some kind of medical intervention i don't think it's democratic certainly not very british i don't think it should be the case and where are these sixty thousand people going to go and if they do go who's going to run the care homes it's going to be chaos it's going to be carnage and it is going to be absolutely and utterly catastrophic for our elderly population.
1: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
2: Right now, let's talk to Harry Miller, former police officer, founder of the Fair Cop Group, because uh, if you were paying attention yesterday, uh, you would have known that two further police officers uh, were up in the Old Bailey. Uh, They were found guilty uh, and are being told that they will, in fact, probably now face custodial sentences. Two officers of the Metropolitan Police from Scotland Yard who were found guilty of the sickening act of sharing pictures of two murdered sisters. Incredible, right? The mother of the victims, Mina Smallman, said, surely now Cressida Dick must carry the can for her force's failings. And yet, nobody, but nobody, uh, seems to be willing uh, to release Cressida Dick from her job as running the Metropolitan Police. Harry, very good morning to you. Welcome.
0: Yeah, good morning. Yet again, we've got Teflon Dick, haven't we? We really uh, have. No- it nothing, seems nothing, extraordinary. Nothing, nothing ever sticks to this woman. All that happens is she makes one cock up after another, and then gets offered with a massive new contract. It's um, it's rotten and it's disgusting. And um, Mrs Smallman is absolutely right to call her out because what they what they did initially was wrong, um, and their response following it was despicable. Yeah. Um, how she's in a job, I just don't know.
2: I mean, it seems amazing, does it not, that one of the reasons given by her sort of um, uh, team, if you like, and also by those who would be in a position to remove her, like Sadiq Khan uh, and like Prissy Patel at the Home Office, one of their reasons is that there isn't really anyone else that can do the job. Well, I mean, that's the most ridiculous reason for keeping somebody in place that I've ever heard.
0: It's, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous.
2: You know, out of all the senior police
0: officers <clears throat> that there are in this country, you're telling me that she's the best we've got, that there's nobody better that's absolutely, that's absolutely terrible. I mean, that's, that's, that's worse than appointing David Moyes as Man United manager. There's far, far, far better. Do you know what I mean? She's terrible. Just yeah. absolute rubbish. She really but, is. But, but, but the rot here is with the College of Policing mm. yet again. Um, the, the, the rot starts there because they're not interested in common sense. And it appears now they're not even interested in common decency. Mm. Um, what, what What is particularly disturbing about this story is the fact that having taken these despicable selfies these officers two officers felt it was appropriate to share it with 40 other officers Mm. on a whatsapp group now there's always been bad apples there's always been bad apples but if you were a bad apple in the past you would hide you would hide your inappropriate behavior because you knew full well that if it came out you'd be for the high jump you'd be sacked but they don't consider this to be an inappropriate Because why else would they have shared it with 40 other officers? That's a significant amount of
2: people. I'm afraid under those circumstances, I don't think bad apple is the right phrase, is it? Because if you've got something which people clearly find funny, um, which I I can't believe anybody would find it funny. I don't really understand why anyone would want to even take the picture, never mind share it. But, you know, if there's 40 other people who are getting it, then clearly these people not only are not just bad apples, They're part of a bigger, growing problem of culture, uh, bad, uh, bad culture in the police force, aren't they?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And all of this stems from uh, the College of Policing, who have who have placed political ideology and the ability to follow procedure above common sense and common decency. Now, in this instance, these two police officers weren't even able to follow procedure by crossing the by crossing the the, the line, both figuratively. And and actually, they contaminated a crime scene. But this is the problem that you get when you prioritise political correctness Mm. um, over anything else. And let's face it, in the College of Policing's mind, women barely exist. Women barely exist. they, 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 They are protected under the Equality Act 2010, but they're entirely ignored by the 2014 College of Policing monitored strands. Mm. That sends a message throughout the police force that women simply do not matter. And of course, if you have that attitude at the top, it's going to cascade down in, uh, in, through your recruitment into your police force, and it's going to become so commonplace and so accepted that these two idiot, evil coppers felt able absolutely able to share it with 40 others. Mm. They know what the code of ethics says. They know that the code of ethics states that any police officer who comes across that kind of behaviour in public or in private, including on social media, they have a duty to report it. So they must have felt supremely confident to have shared these these despicable pictures. And the reason they felt confident is because they know that in the the hierarchy of what's important, women are right down there in the basement. So they felt they felt as though they could do it with utter impunity.
2: Right. But how does that tally, though, um, Harry, with the idea that we think we we, we look at the police and we think of them as a sort of woke organisation now? You know, that they've painted all their their cars in rainbow colours that, you know, uh, they're out there celebrating uh, Earth Day with the Extinction Rebellion. You know, they're thought to be these very enlightened individuals. So how can they be what would appear that these two are uh, like some kind of creatures from the Dark Ages?
0: Yeah, because it's, it's a false enlightenment. They're very enlightened when it comes to LGBTQ. They're very enlightened um, when it comes to Islam, for instance. They're entirely unenlightened when it comes to the matter of protecting women and girls. They just simply don't care about it. Let, let, let's be honest. The reason that we have these LGBTQ police cars was because they wanted to make LGBT people feel, feel secure. Well, when you look at the number of domestic murders and the number of the, the amount of violence that there is against women and girls... If they really believed that, there would be police cars up and down the streets um, with, you know, the word "woman," adult human female, yeah. or painted with the suffragette colours. Um, they don't do it because they simply don't care. They have a hierarchy, a political hierarchy of ideology, and women simply do not figure. They just don't. Yeah. That means that means you're quite able to tell um, horrendous, not not just saucy jokes, but absolutely horrendous jokes. You're able. You feel able to superimpose your your face on the face of a female murder victim yeah. and share it with your colleagues it's because women are bottom absolutely bottom of the list and this is why we're calling for the college of policing uh, not only to check itself and to check its own thinking but actually to be shut down because they are they are useless and they that that is the that is the head where all of this rot comes from, the College of Policing. No,
2: absolutely right. And isn't it ironic that there's a woman at the very top of the organisation who doesn't appear to have any kind of empathy for for any other women? Let's not forget the Wayne Cousins cops, and I don't know what's happened to them. I think they've been suspended, but no doubt uh, they might be reinstated. They were exchanging jokes about kidnapping women and taking them off to the woods. I mean, yeah. you know. Yeah,
0: I, I, absolutely. You know, when, when when you're nicknamed when you're nicknamed the the ra- the rapist. Yeah. And that's acceptable. I tell you what, you wouldn't get a job if your nickname was the transphobe, or the or the Islamophobe. No, you'd be you'd be out on your ear before lunchtime. Mm. That's that's the fact because it yet again it stems back that there are certain ideologies which are absolutely protected and that there are this comes at the expense of people and that group of people are women and girls mm. the police mm. simply don't care and it's a tra- it's an absolute tragedy mm. that there's mm. a woman in the top spot the, the most important police officer in the uk probably in the world uh, and she's absolutely sold out women let them down doesn't seem bothered about a culture a, a culture where it's absolutely fine to behave in this utterly horrible misogynistic mm. way we we've just published a report ra- la- last week on fair cop uh, called the invisible strand and uh, it's well worth reading because uh, whatsapp groups they are a problem but they are a symptom of the more immediate the, the the real problem which is the culture at the college of policing and that's why that's why all our efforts are set upon shutting that place down because it's unfit for purpose yeah
2: it really is unbelievable. And, of course, uh, Sadiq Khan's been quoted today as saying, uh, on the subject of Crested the Dick, uh, it's harder sometimes to to stay in the job than it is to leave. Leaving's the easy option. Really?
0: Well, well really. You know, if you're rubbish, you've got to go, haven't you? You've just got to go. Um, I I don't know why Pretty Patel... I've got a lot of time for, for Pretty Patel, but I, I don't really understand why she's sort of um, endorsed... Um, Cressida Dick, uh, another contract. I mean, they clearly can't stand each other. Um, I, I, I don't know what's going on, but the best thing that can happen for policing, uh, both in the London area and, of course, in the wider in the wider areas of England, Wales and Scotland, et cetera, is for her to go. Mm. She's got mm. to go and they need to put somebody in there, whether it be a male or a female, I really don't care, who understands what a woman is and understands what violence against women and girls is and is prepared to tackle it. Mm. But to do that, you've got to sacrifice something. What you've got to sacrifice is this this blind commitment to certain ideologies. If you want to tackle a problem, you've got to name the problem. There's a Chinese wisdom that says the beginning of the, the beginning of wisdom is to call a thing by its proper name, mm. and this mm. is absolutely true, and this is what we need from Cressida Dick and from all Chief Constables and from the College of Policing. We need to call violence against women and girls misogyny, call it what it is and tackle it. We need to get rid of this notion that any man can simply say that they're a woman. Uh, we need to get rid of that. We need to get rid of this all this pronoun nonsense. We need to get rid of all this painting police cars nonsense. And we've got to name the problem, whether that's Uh, Whether that's a problem within Islam or whether it's a problem about violence against women and girls, we've got to name the problem in order to begin
2: to solve Mm, it. I think it's absolutely right uh, what you have said, Harry Miller. Talking sense, as everybody on this show does with one or two exceptions, of course. Former police officer, founder of the Fair Cop
1: Group. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
2: Now, we're going to talk today about a very happy story. We don't always get to talk about happy stories uh, in this business very often, I'm afraid, but an extraordinary story broke uh, overnight here uh, in the UK, but it happened down in Australia, in Western Australia, uh, of course, um, in a place uh, not far from Perth, about 900 kilometres north of Perth, a town called Carnarvon. A little girl... Aged four, um, Cle- Australia's Maddie, she's being called, Cleo Smith, was kidnapped mysteriously uh, in the middle of the night from her uh, mother's and stepfather's tent in a remote sort of campsite uh, outside of uh, of Carnarvon, I believe. Um, and she was missing for 18 days. Of course, the police, uh, the entire nation, politicians, the parents themselves, all feared the worst, all thought that they would maybe never see little Cleo again. But she's been found alive 18 days later, in a locked house, and the man who lives in that house has been arrested. Let's go now to Oliver Peterson uh, from Radio 6 PR in Carnarvon to find out exactly how this all unfolded. Oliver, very good um, uh, evening to you, is it there?
4: It is evening here, Mike, yeah, 25 to 9 local time, and it is Australia's Madeleine McCann story, but we have the most incredible news to share with our listeners this morning that she is alive she is well she had a super duper, an icy pole with her mum this afternoon and she is back reunited with her mother after 18 days it is incredible news Mike
2: it really is because obviously I mean it's 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 sort of news to us that this was really going on because obviously it wasn't as big of a story for for, for this country as it was for you I mean you must have been um, absolutely yeah. obsessed with this story for the last 18 days
4: We have been sitting on the edge of our seat, and to fill our listeners in, basically what happened here, as you mentioned in your introduction, 18 days ago, she was camping with her parents at a place called the Blowholes, which is about 70 kilometres away here from Carnarvon. Mm. So she was there in that tent. She was abducted overnight. And this is what's really scary, Mike, is the person who abducted her lives just seven minutes away from where little Cleo Smith lives. So seven minutes away, who this bloke is, what he was doing, was he watching them, did he follow them to the campsite, was this sort of some crime of opportunity, had there been some pre-plan, there's something very, very fishy still at this stage. We don't have charges at the moment, but I can tell you tonight, Mike, as well, it is really dividing a very small community which is Carnarvon and there's a bit of a concern here from the police force as well about what sort of revenge might be taken by some members of the community Mm. if or when this person is charged and he is named.
2: Yeah, he's described as a sort of quiet, relatively quiet individual who was spotted buying nappies in in a local supermarket. Was that the tip that led police to him or do you suspect there was something else that they found?
4: I think it's something else. I think it might have something to do with text messages. I think it might have something to do with the fact that he sent... Uh, some sort of text message, but they're not giving us all that information. I spoke to a bloke named Donald who works at a local bakery. He's been friends with this bloke for 36 years, and he saw him yesterday, Mike. He told me on my program, Perth Live 6PR, this afternoon, that he saw him yesterday and waved to him. They had a bit of a chat, and now he's reassessing who his friend is because what's he been doing with this girl for the last 18 days and capturing her against her will, locked in a home?
2: Yes. I mean, she looks, to all intents and purposes happy enough in the pictures that we've seen uh, we can only hope that yeah. that's because nothing terrible did happen but it's a very bizarre thing to do isn't it to take somebody else's child and bring them to your home uh it just it doesn't really compute does it
4: no it doesn't and to keep them alive for 18 days yeah. so what was happening in that home the Home Affairs Minister of Australia, Karen Andrews, has made some sort of suggestion this might have something to do with some sort of global child sex rings. That is unconfirmed at this stage. But you do wonder mm. what was going on in that home for 18 days, Mike, and I think mm. that's what's really scary, and that information, which will hopefully be revealed sooner rather than
1: later.
2: Yes, and my understanding is that the parents in the tent, um, the mother was in the tent, but the, but, the, but it's a stepfather that's in there. Has, has the father been uh, contacted at all?
4: He has been. He he lives about two hours south of Perth, and I'm about nine hours north of Perth. So he lives a long way away. Mm. There's obviously been in these cases, you know, lots of people making some sort of accusation that the parents must know something or the yeah. stepfather must know something, and the police force over here have been uh, very definitive in the fact they have nothing to do with it. In fact, the only person in custody at the moment has no connections to anybody else, and he is the only suspect.
2: Yeah, that is so strange, isn't it? Because uh, of course, in the in the Madeleine McCann case, the parents uh, got terrible abuse from people for leaving their own child in a place where uh, she could have been taken but I mean in this case they're with the child Um, it's almost impossible to imagine how uh, she could have been taken without them realising
4: You'd wonder, but there has been as well the similar sort of reaction, a lot of people online in particular making their own assessment because the little girl Cleo was sleeping at the front of a tent. The parents were at the back of a second section of this tent. So what was the mum and the stepfather doing in the back of the tent, putting a four-year-old in the front of the tent? So you can probably understand why people do speculate mm. and make some sort of uh, of assessment of their own. But look, it's it's a happy day, isn't it, Mike? Ultimately, because we, we never talk about after 18 days... This being the outcome. So right. that's why obviously you and you and I're talking today because it's something to celebrate this awful covid world at the moment. And I'll tell you what, we're on cloud nine up here yeah. in Canada and I'm at the local pub and everybody's enjoying a few beers as they should be.
2: Yeah, absolutely brilliant it is. As I said, you know, not we don't unfortunately get the chance very often to to bring people good news. So so I'm delighted. Have you managed to actually get some sleep over the period of the last few hours? <laughs>
4: Well, in fact, I had a charter aircraft here at 2 pm, and my time go my show goes to air at 3 pm. But I've been up since the early hours of the morning, like everybody else. So I, think, I think it's actually given Australia as a whole nation a big lift today. Yeah. Like, and it, it's been broadcast and it's been a headline news here, obviously, in, in my state in particular, the last 18 days. But it is now uh, deservedly receiving this international recognition. And I think. If it's something that can give everybody a spring in their step today as well, and go and have a look at the, the life and the times of, of Cleo Smith and the fact that she was having a little, as I said, icy cold this afternoon with her mum. I think that's what brings you know, a big smile
2: on lots yes. of
1: people's faces.
2: And in these kind of situations, I mean, I know it's not exactly something that happens every day, but uh, will there be a kind of a scramble for people to try to get uh, the first interview with, with little Cleo's mother?
4: Of course. but I mean, they have been very forthcoming over the last couple of weeks when it's come to media interviews. They've gone to ground now, uh, but I would assume if they aren't talking tomorrow, they're talking by the end of the week and there'll be a huge, huge media scrum and, and environment trying to land that exclusive interview with the parents. So, uh, look, there's, there's a lot to learn as well. There's a lot of detail that the police need to put together. Yeah. They're calling it old-fashioned police work, and they also say when they put the dominoes together... And they'll be able to make a very compelling case when this particular individual is charged.
2: Yes, and in the old days, of course, you'd probably have been suffering from an, an influx of foreign journos uh, stamping all over your patch. <laughs> uh, but you, you, that won't be happening this time, right?
4: Mate, you can't even get people outside of Western <laughs> Australia into this place at the moment. We are the... COVID-free state of the nation and, right. you know, it's it's been a long battle, I tell you what, but I'm looking forward to the Ashes this summer and rolling England 5 zip. <laughs> well, you'll
2: be pleased to know that I actually, on these occasions, claim to be Scottish, so I don't really care if you do. Uh, so you can do that with absolute pleasure and with my permission, go for it. Listen, great to talk to you, Oliver. Thank you very much indeed. Oliver Peterson uh, from Radio 6PR there in Carnarvon, Australia, just outside, well, about a thousand, nearly a thousand kilometres outside uh, of Perth in Western Australia but what an incredible story I mean you can only hope that this little girl did not suffer at the hands of this character who seems to have been holding her for 18 days uh, in a house not far from where she actually lived having taken her from a tent uh, in a a sort of a a, a very tucked away campsite uh, some miles north absolutely extraordinary story Um, and let's hope that uh, that it all exactly uh, comes out as we would hope it would and that There is an explanation for it all. It does seem very, very strange. But as I say, nice to be able to bring you some decent good news for a change uh, here on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Talk radio
1: across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on talk radio.